Really, today's message is about inviting you this week, this special holiday week, where we remember Easter, remember the cross of Christ, to really just spend time gazing upon it. We've been looking the last few weeks at the journey, our journey of the cross, and, and we've focused on some of Jesus' commands to us. And, and, and one, of the, one of the things that really troubles me about the commands of Jesus is that they're so extreme that we've looked at. And when things are extreme, I don't know about you, but it makes me nervous. When there's no middle ground, when it's not like, because don't, don't we usually go through life trying to find the balance and everything? We, find, we, we, try to, we hear somebody's claim here, we hear somebody's claim here, and, and we usually think that truth is somewhere in the balance. But, but Jesus, as we've looked at, has made these, these extreme claims to us. If you want to follow me, take up your cross daily, he says. And it leaves us, leaves us with no middle ground. There's not a balance point to that. It's either you do or don't. In fact, he goes in another place and says it more, more clearly. He says, if we're unwilling to take up our cross, then we cannot be his followers. It's, it's just clearly these extreme statements. And last week we looked at you know, his command to us to trust him. Uh, trust God and trust in Him. And, and we looked at how that, that was defined by Jesus as trust being defined by, by love and love by obedience. And, and, and even Jesus say, saying this, this outlandish statement that makes us really feel uncomfortable a lot of times that, that it's only when you obey me that I'll actually disclose more of me. Sometimes, sometimes we don't have clarity and we want clarity in our faith. We want clarity in our trust. But Jesus says, you know, obey what you already know and then I'll disclose more of me. It's, it's this outlandish claim to, to almost blind trust that Jesus asks us of him. And it just makes me uncomfortable. Even, even though I believe it, it still makes me uncomfortable because extremism is something we struggle with. We struggle with it today with extreme Muslim terrorists who blow people up, even blowing up one of our own a couple, about a year, a year and a half ago. And, and we struggle with extremists who call themselves Christians who shoot abortion doctors or who pro- protest military funerals. Or, or we struggle with extremes in politics. We, we struggle with extreme right-wing politics who, who almost wants anarchy and, and free reign of everybody. And then we struggle with the far left-wing that wants this form of socialism or communism or the government to be all in all to us so much so that, it, you know, I mean, we look at history and we go, what, what good has that form of government ever done to human dignity or faith? And, and so we always try to choose the middle. But Jesus, we, we just can't get away from this journey of the cross being this, this claim to extreme commitment. And the thing I want to do today is, as we've looked at it from the example from our standpoints of what we should do, but I want to look today and gaze at Jesus some by looking at how he lived this out himself in a way to, to not only just show us the way to live, but, a, but a way, just a way to be an example to us that, that he led by example for us. And as part of this, we deal with this theological doctrine that's called the incarnation. Most of you have probably heard about that. And basically what it means is that, is that God, and this is the truth that we believe as Christians, that God became man in Jesus. But the problem is that when we look at that, we kind of go, well, does that really make Jesus a good example for me to follow? Because after all, Jesus had this God button, and my life is such that I don't even feel like I have an easy button to push. You ever, you like this button? That was easy. Does your life ever feel like it was easy? 
I mean, my life doesn't even feel like I have an easy button to push. So how am I supposed to follow God when it was God incarnate and he had this God button to push? And we almost treat this whole idea of incarnation as as Jesus in practicality. We look at it and say, well, Jesus was really in our minds probably 10% human and 90% God. And, and therefore, yes, he's nice, he's inspiring to look at, but he's so far removed from who we are. And he, and he had this access to this God button that we don't have. So how are we expected to actually be like him and become like him? And yet, that's not what the Bible teaches about what this looked like for Jesus being God incarnate. Philippians 2, 1 through 11 reads this. It says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, If any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should think not only of his own interests, but also the interests of others. And here was where it really starts to get into this whole incarnation explanation. All these attitudes that I just recommended are things that Jesus demonstrated to us, that he's asking us to be like him, but they feel so out of touch and out of reach for us so often. And it says, your attitude should be the same in verse 5 as that of Christ Jesus, the way we relate to others, the way we trust, the way we love, the way we trust in God's love for us should be the same. Who being very nature God, being 100% God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Of all people in all of human history, Jesus had the right to claim equality with God. Now, we tend to do that as humans sometimes because that's really where the core of our sin comes from. We, we argue with God and say, okay, you say to do this, but that doesn't seem reasonable, so I'm going to be God and I'm going to judge you, God, and say that what you ask really isn't true, really isn't who you are. And we make ourselves out to be God in that way, but, but here it says that Jesus in the incarnation was totally God, but he chose not to act as God. Somehow... In this whole mystery of what happened, God being man, he chose to limit his divine power to not use the divine button and instead to live exactly as we live with the same options, the same resources, the same authority, the same power, the same wisdom available to us. And it says not only that, but in verse 7 it says, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In other words, it's, it's going back to the fact that he didn't come as a prince, he didn't come as a wise person, he actually came as the lowliest of all people to relate to the most despised of people to show that we could follow God no matter what state we are in, no matter what social class, no matter what education, no matter what background we come from. And being found in appearance as a man, it says, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He took up his cross daily. He trusted God daily in the same way that he asks us to. It says this about describing that as well in John 5.19. It says, 
Jesus gave them this answer. He says, I tell you the truth. The son, can, referring to himself, can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. This is just another way of him describing the self-limitation that he put on himself. He chose not to exercise his divine attributes, but to submit himself to God as we have to. To hear from him, to only do what he asks us to do. Ben Witherington, a, a, both a great theologian and a great speaker who teaches at Asbury Seminary, wrote this about it. He said, when Jesus says he knows neither the day or the hour of his second coming, he means, I don't know. Could he have drawn on his divine access to all knowledge? Yes, certainly, but he refused to do so precisely because if he had, he would have ceased to have been fully human as we are. We don't have God buttons, and Jesus chose not to use the divine button himself. Jesus does not perform his miracles by a divine nature. He performs them like they would happen in our lives when we receive his invitation through the direction of the word of God and through the very real presence of his spirit with us. Because he intends for us to be able to follow him in this example of us learning to rely on those same things to guide our own faith, our own life as well. You see, Jesus lived the word of God at the direction of the spirit of God and the word of God. And for him, faith starts, trust starts with surrendering of control and a relationship of complete trust to the love of God. Not to the knowledge of rules, not to the knowledge of the laws and the commandments. It starts with relationship and submission and obedience to that relationship. In our Philippians passage, he talks about this cross-carrying thing again from a different perspective. He uses the word humility. And for him, humility is not this, not this uh, demeaning of oneself or, or not this putting of himself down. It's actually based in an action. It's based in his step. It's based in the strength of action to be able to say, yes, I have this ability. Jesus could, could easily say, I have this ability to exercise my divine power, but I choose to not. I choose to surrender. And he invites us to that same kind of humility, that strength that knows who we are, but we choose to step away from our own control, our own pride, our own judging, and instead to look at Jesus, to be a person who willingly takes up our cross and follows him, not begrudgingly. So that leads me to ask this question. What are some of the lessons we learn from Jesus, especially during this Passion Week, the way he operated, the way he lived, that demonstrate for us this level of trust. So we see in Jesus' life this, the first lesson for me is wrapped up in this, we see in Jesus' life this drivenness, this, this focus, this intentionality. And I can relate to that. I don't know about you, but I can relate to that because I tend to be a fairly driven person. I, I tend to be very focused. And I know many of you are in your work or many of you are in your home as well. You have all these intentions, this drivenness that you want to accomplish this and, and you know where you want to go. Maybe it's, maybe it's something you feel God led you to or maybe it's just what you want to accomplish in business because you want to do that or you want to make that kind of money or you want to make that impact. I don't know what your drivenness comes from, but But for me, I know so often it leaves me tired and it leaves me frustrated and it leaves me less present in the moment because I'm constantly thinking about where do I need to go? What do I need to get done? And 
and I miss moments. You know, an example of this season is even just a couple of weeks ago, I was out running uh, errands and the, the little cards that we have that we're asking you to, to take and invite people with and hand out in your neighborhoods. So I was going to pick those up and as I'm picking it up, I'm just thinking, man, I got this and this and this and this and this to get done and I got I to gotta get home and the family needs this and this and this and we've got this schedule with the kids tonight and I was just in one of those driven modes and I walk in and the guy handing me the cards uh, all of a sudden says, hey, I live in your neighborhood and I attended Quest a while back. It was a really great experience and, and, and you know, it's just one of those moments where you just realize, you walk out, I walked out and said thanks and I realized, you know, I just missed a moment there. I could have just asked him, you know, what's going on, what was great about it, and, you know, had a conversation possibly about faith because he was bringing it up. And, and you just miss those opportunities. You miss them with your kids sometimes. They, you realize that a day later you go, oh, man, they talked about this, and I didn't take the cue. And I, Jesus somehow, I think the first lesson of this trust from Jesus is that somehow in the midst of amazing intensity around him, amazing pressure, this trust exhibits itself in a way that allows him to be free to be present in the moment. No matter what's going on. And don't you ever wish you were more like that? Don't you ever wish you'd just stop missing some of these beautiful moments when you could, when you could ask somebody a question, you could have cared for them or you could have listened to them? And it's so easy in our drivenness, but when we walk in this place of just absolute trust in God, it brings a sense of peace that allows us to be present in the moment. I mean, I mean, look at it. Jesus, Jesus predicted his own death. He's, he's, he's getting, to re leave, getting ready to leave his hometown, and he says to his disciples, you know, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man's going to be crucified and, and die and beaten, and, and then on the third day he's going to be raised again. And he, and he comes up to one of his very close friend's house on the outskirts of of, uh, of Jerusalem, and you know he's getting closer. You know he's had hours and hours and hours on his walk up there. I mean, it's not like driving up there. It's like hours, days of walking up there, and he's had time to think about all this pressure. And can you imagine any one of us facing that same knowledge of what we're going to and the intensity and how emotionally drained that would make us and how emotionally absent a lot of times that would make us. And yet, and yet we see Jesus at Lazarus' house in this interaction with Mary and Martha and, uh, where, where he's able to just pay attention to, to Mary's needs to, to know him and to receive as well her love for him in that moment. And we see that story sometimes of, of Martha busy serving and Mary at Jesus' feet as a rebuke of Martha of Martha serving, but I think really more often than not, and in that instance, I think Jesus is just being present in the moment. He's going through intense stuff and she's willing to minister to him and she's going through intense stuff because she's heard all this talk about Jesus going, to, going up to Jerusalem and that he's going to die and she's probably confused and she's got a heart of compassion and he's somehow able to be there in the moment and then we see him even a day or so later when he's coming into Jerusalem, which is the Sunday that we're celebrating right now called Palm Sunday. It's just what, what we refer to as his triumphal entry. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a colt knowing he's going to his death. And Jerusalem at this time of the year would have been, normally it's about 80,000 people or so that lived in Jerusalem from the, from the archaeologists and the historians. But during this time of the year, because of the festival, there were over 300,000 people there. And Jesus comes up riding the hill and, and there's all this celebration and this hubbub. And, and, and can you imagine the last time you were desperate, feeling like you had a death sentence or feeling like things were going south in your marriage or, your, or a family and you were just depressed and everybody's celebrating around you? How, how, how easy is that? 
And I've talked to people who come here when we do a a celebratory song and they've gone through a rough week and it just makes them want to scream because they're not in the place of celebrating. And yet, for some reason, Jesus has this ability, even facing those circumstances, to celebrate and enjoy. And, And if we're driven people so often, we don't have that ability to stop and celebrate because we're on to the next goal. But somehow Jesus, with this trust of God, is able to just... Go for the journey and be present in the moment. And then even a few months, a few, uh, uh, just a few steps later, we see Jesus coming over. And I can imagine him just coming around a bend or coming out of the trees while everybody's celebrating and seeing this beautiful picture of Jerusalem. And he goes from defending the celebration with the people who were saying, why are you letting him celebrate you this way, to, to all of a sudden going through this beautiful moment of mourning where he looks at Jerusalem and says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if, if you only knew how many times I had tried to gather you as a mother hen gathers its chicks under you, under wings and, and care for you, but you wouldn't let me. And this depth of, of sadness and, 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 and love and expression. And, and Jesus has the ability somehow in the midst of intense pressure to go from one extreme of emotion to the other and be fully present. Doesn't that sound like a a wonderful way, a wonderful freedom of a way to live, to not lose those moments of joy, to be that free, but it's the trust of the Father, him walking out the trust of the Father that allows him to do that. You know, I was was looking at this as well from another perspective with Jesus, and it brought to mind some of the experiences I had in the my previous place of employment where I, was, where I was doing consulting with churches, and I did a lot of work with boards trying to lead change in churches that were declining and unhealthy and trying to turn them around. And, and, and they, were, they were basically, a lot of them were dying churches. And, uh, and I had a lot of experiences, and there was one experience where I, was, where I was invited in to work with a situation to help lead a change, to help initiate a change that everybody felt like needed to be done, but there was resistance in the board, and there was a 10-person board, and I remember sitting there talking to them, and throughout the meeting, by the time that we were done, nine out of the 10 people were saying, yes, this is exactly what we need to do. Yes, this is the right timing to do this. Yes, this makes the most sense. We believe God's in this. They were all saying that. And I walk out of the room, and they vote, and 20 minutes later, the, the, the pastor comes out and says it was eight to two against. Now, how many of you have worked in situations where a boss or a, or a board or a coworker, you just could never lead change? There, there was just resistance and you looked at it and you just went, there's, there's no way this is ever going to happen. Or maybe you looked at it in a relationship in your family and you went, somebody's never going to change. My dad's never going to change or my sister's never going to change. They are just so resistant that there's nothing that can reach them. And you walk away in despair and you walk away going, God, you know, I felt like you told me to make a difference here in my job, but this is hopeless. Or I felt like you, you, you've invited me to love and you've told me that if I'll love that, that they'll, they'll receive the love. And it just doesn't ever seem to make a difference. It's hopeless. You ever, you ever feel that way? You ever been in a situation where you felt that? You know, Jesus had this amazing ability that we see illustrated in this Passion Week where he dealt with power brokers. He dealt with people who were going to refuse to change. They wanted their own way. And yet we see 
this level of trust in him that basically said, I've fully reconciled in myself who's really in control. And it's not these guys who are resisting everything that seems good and righteous. We see it in Jesus and in John 18 and a couple of, of, of amazing incidences that are recorded there. In uh, verse, the first few verses of the chapter, it's where Jesus is about to be betrayed. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and the, and the soldiers all come and there's a whole mob of them coming. And, it's, and remember, this is really, really, really dark. And so you really can't see each other. They probably, it's probably a cool night. They probably have kind of robes over their head to help keep them warm, kind of their hat, form a hat, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and so they, they came there saying that we need to ask to see who Jesus is so we know who he is. And so they asked, and Jesus says, I am he. And then John records this amazing phenomenon that happened. He said when, he, when Jesus said that, all the guards coming out there for blood, coming out there to bind him in full authority, they all stepped back and fell to the ground because God's presence was there in a way that exerted control. And Jesus, Jesus trusted that God was in control, not these men, and, and there were actually demonstrations of it. And then a little, little bit later, can you imagine this? Just a, just a few moments later, they're starting to bind Jesus up and, and Simon Peter, you know, and as all his brashness, pulls out his sword and cuts off a servant's ear and... and and think about this. Have you ever thought about this? This is like 15, 20 armed guards. They got their spears out. They probably came with their swords out already. Why didn't a brawl happen at that moment? The only explanation I can have is God's in control. We see this whole thing being lived out, not just in faith, but in, in reality in these tense situations. In fact, in Matthew records Jesus is saying this. He said, not only put your sword back, but he said, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put a disposal, at a disposal to me more than 12 legions of angels? And then he says this amazing statement of submission again to the trust of God and the love of God. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Or before Pilate in Verse 7 of John 19, we see, we see the Jews uh, confronting Pilate. Pilate saying, ah, the guy's not guilty of anything. Why would you ever want this? And then all of a sudden they say, well, he's the, he, he claims to be the son of God. And in context, we know from another interaction that Pilate's wife came to him in that same context and said, I had a dream that I believe is from God. Don't mess with this person today. And so Pilate goes back and it says, and he says, it was, Pilate says here, it says he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace and asked, where do you come from to Jesus? But Jesus gave him no answer. And he says, do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. You'd have no power. This is the most powerful Roman guy in the area. This guy could go out and crucify or kill anybody pretty much any time he wanted, as long as they weren't a Roman citizen, without any consequences. There's this element of trust in Jesus that is amazing, and he invites us to, even in carrying our cross and following him, that whatever situation we're in, we'd recognize that even though it seems like this will never happen because of this person, whether it's a boss or a dad or a brother or a sister or a board member, 
that he's in control. So trust what he's called you to do and act upon what he's called you to do. There's another uh, aspect too that I think comes out of this, of Jesus, that let me, let me get into it this way. There's this illustration that, that is used commonly around Easter that's just, it's, a, it's a, an amazing illustration from the standpoint that it has lots of drama and it has, and it has lots of emotion to it. And it's, and it's used, many of you have probably heard this over and over again used and I got to tell you I've never really liked it and that's partially because it's not accurate but here's the illustration the illustration have you heard the whole uh, engineer of the drawbridge illustration you have this engineer of a drawbridge who raises and lowers this bridge whether a ship's coming under on the water he'll raise it and if and if he needs to lower it for a train coming across he'll lower it well one day comes along and it's uh, bring your child to work day. And so his son comes and his son's in the, in the cabin with him and he's asking all sorts of questions. He's showing them how everything works and pushing all the buttons and the ship comes along and they raise the, raise the drawbridge up and the ship goes through and the, when he gets done raising the drawbridge, he turns around and realizes his son no longer, is no longer in the cabin with him. He goes out trying to find him. He sees him crawling around on all the big gears that raise and lower this great big drawbridge. And, and at that very moment... The bell goes off saying there's a train coming. And the father is faced with this horrible choice, this horrendous choice. Do I, do I save my son and kill hundreds of people on this train? Or do I push the button and kill my son in the gears and save the people on the train? And as the story goes, he chooses to save the people. And he pushes the button. And, and we liken this in church to an illustration of what Jesus did for us at Calvary. And there are two things that it portrays correctly. It is true that the Father's heart is extremely grieved over the sin that, that, that affects us. And that he had to lay on Jesus to bring justice. It tears his heart out. He loves us so much that it tears his heart out when we sin. And there is another truth to it as well. It is true that it's so easy for us in a drivenness of life and the passion that we have for life and just the busyness of life to, to run through life and run by all these moments when, when the sacrifice of God is left off to the side and we go by not even realizing it, like passengers on the train, not even realizing what happened for us and what God did for us. But... What it grossly, incorrectly portrays is the actual sacrifice of Jesus and what it really was about and how it really came about. Because if we look back at our Philippians 2 passage, it says that Jesus chose, chose to humble himself, chose to come as a man for us, to bear our sin for us. It's not as though it's some sort of... Uh, cosmic accident or bad timing or 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 we're plummeting towards uh, towards doom in this train and god has to just respond and hadn't really thought about it and just sacrifices this child the child doesn't even know why it's being sacrificed that's not it at all from the very first sin in the world the cross was on the horizon and it was an intentional plan 
God intentionally planted the tree that would become the cross. God intentionally allowed man to find iron ore and learn to fashion it into nails, the nails that would go in his hands. He intentionally, in his kindness, birthed Judas in the womb of his mother and brought joy to his, joy to his mother and, her, and the family, knowing that Judas would betray him. He influenced the political climate of the day to allow it to illustrate the sin of the world. You know, it's kind of like today. When we have bad government, it's because it's a reflection of our sin in our culture. When we have good government, it's because we're making good choices. And it's really the same way. And here's the deal. Jesus didn't have to have guards and ropes to take him to the cross. It was an intentional plan on his part that he knew ahead of time. He would have walked there whether there were guards or ropes or not. And why? He says this in John 10, 17. The reason my Father loves me, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. We see Jesus' amazing trust that God really is love. Making Him intentional in His approach to what seems like awfulness. And He invites us to the same kind of trust that says who for the joy set before him he endured the cross he trusted that when God told him to say if you lose your life you'll find it if you find your life you'll lose it he trusted that in losing his life he would find it you see he could have walked away at any time even during this week there's so many examples of when he could have walked away from this whole thing he comes into Jerusalem and he knows that there's a plot going against him. It, it, it acknowledges earlier that he had already gotten word that the religious leaders were looking for a way to kill him. Now, how did he get that? Well, we don't know for sure, but he probably got that word because we know that Nicodemus was a part of that religious ruling body and we know that Joseph of Arimathea was likely as well. So he had two people who were secretly following him who were part of the body trying to plot his death. You think he didn't know what was going on when all the rulers came to him in the square and tried to trick him to say something that, that they could arrest him for and kill him? Do you think he didn't know what was going on when all the, all the guards came to him one day in the temple when he was teaching, came there to arrest him, but they couldn't because of the amazingness of his teaching and the healings going on? He could have walked away at that time. Or, or what about when, when he basically at the dinner said, Judas, I know you're going to betray me. Go do what you're going to do. He could have walked away then instead of walking out to the same place in Gethsemane where they always went, which is what it says he did, so that Judas would be able to find him. He had complete authority, complete control to walk away at any time. But the amazing beauty is that he didn't. And he didn't because he trusted the love of God and he loved us so desperately. What does that say about our ability to trust his love? 
A God who could walk away, who became man, who limited himself to operate through life exactly like we did, knew what God's call was on his life, knew what the end result was going to be, knew from the moment he was aware of what his call was in life that his call meant going to the cross, and yet he did it and walked along with it, had this amazing sense of ability to be present in the moment the entire time, to minister to us, to care for our needs, to rejoice with us, to love us. We see it in his prayer in Gethsemane and recorded in Mark 14.36. It says, Abba, Father. And if we really look at that correctly, it's an endearing term. He's saying, Daddy, Papa, Father. Everything, not, not some things. My trust is such in you that I know everything, everything is possible with you. Yet not what I will, but what you will be done in my life. Because I trust your love and I trust your complete acceptance of me. Paul Tillich gives us, I think, what's really an amazing definition of what trust and faith is. He says this, he says, the courage, it's the courage to accept acceptance. It's the courage to to accept acceptance. It's the courage to accept that God loves you right now, whether your life is mucked up, whether you mucked it up last night, whether you mucked it up this morning, or whether you think your life is going well. He loves you right now as much as he'll ever love you. And trust and faith is the courage for you to accept that. It's hard to accept. Isn't Isn't that really where a lot of our faith struggle and our faith journey comes down? It's so hard to accept that He really does love us that much. Maybe take some time this week and, and read through the Passion Week. And I want you to I want you to do it not just reading it, but I want you to take time to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine when you see Jesus with his disciples leaving his hometown where he's lived for years as an adult now, leaving, looking at the city, knowing he's never going to come back, knowing what he's going to. What do you see in his eyes? What do you see in the way he's acting? Or, or, or what do you see when he comes up to, to Bethany and he sees He sees Lazarus, his friend that he raised from the dead, has been such a close friend, and Mary and Martha who have been ministering to him for many years throughout his journey and his love for them. What do you you see when when he's sitting there listening to Mary and he's pouring both his heart out to her and he's ministering to her as she sits at his feet? What do you see on his face and his eyes when when he comes into Jerusalem? strong on the back of a donkey like a king would. And he both receives the celebration and he he mourns as well that it's such a high price that he has to pay that people would not come to him. That he's tried so desperately to love these people and help them to follow him and yet they won't. Take time. As our journey, as our video at the beginning said, take time to 
to have those images in your mind this week. I think it'll help you. I know it'll help you and it'll help me trust that God really does love us. And no matter what the situation, we can trust that. Lord, I pray for those here who who believe, those who want to believe but struggle. And I pray for those here who uh, are really indifferent, aren't, aren't really sure. Lord, I pray that through this season as we as we continue to celebrate and, and to remember the fullness of what you did for us, that you become that much more real to us. Lord, that we would understand the depth of your love and that we would trust that. Lord, in the areas of our life where, where we feel hopeless, where it seems like things can never change, whether it's us or whether it's others around us that just won't ever change, Lord, that we can trust you, that you're in control. Trust you that you have a good plan for us and for them. And that no matter what it looks like, you, Lord, are love. Help us release our stress to you and experience you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. I pray that you would uh, really take this week. I know many of you have Friday off. Would you consider taking some of Friday and just pondering? And We have a wonderful, wonderful Good Friday service scheduled. I think it's going to take you through a lot of these things, help you visualize God's love for you, help you realize how awesomely He loves you. And uh, I want to encourage you as well to make this about other people. Invite friends. Invite friends to Good Friday. Easter service is going to be a wonderful service where we get to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We have a wonderful drama planned and, uh, and a message that I think will speak not only to your hearts, but I think to those who are struggling with faith. I think it will be a, a, a message that could be pivotal in their lives. So would you please pray for, invite your friends. And uh, you know, if you go for a walk or a run this week, take some flyers and just pray over them and ask God to touch some people's hearts. God bless. If you'd like prayer, Uh, Grab a friend. Have a great week.